click. All right. Well, are you ready to get started, Sam? Yep. Well, let's do it then. Uh, this is episode 21 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matthew Sitman, one of the podcast co-hosts, and I'm here with my friend Sam Adler-Bell. Hi, Matt. Our podcast is of um, legal d- drinking age, if it was each episode was a year. <laughs> right. So, in podcast years. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> I guess that's what I'm saying. That's not very meaningful. <laughs> this episode is one we've been looking forward to for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's with Jamel Bowie, the New York Times columnist, uh, who I'm sure a lot of our listeners read regularly, and someone who's, you know, by my lights, one of the one of the very best columnists writing today. Yeah, absolutely. And we get into quite a lot about why we think the way he uses his column is unique in our conversation with him. So we don't need to really dwell on it. But it's a winding conversation, and we talk a lot about how. History is used in politics by conservatives, by liberals, by leftists. We talk a lot about the 1619 Project and its uh-huh. sort of place in the culture war, um, but but also about the substance of it, right? And the substance of some of the critiques, the better ones, the less less uh, good faith ones, <laughs> and um, and then and then we talk about um, sort of the ongoing protests against racism and police brutality too. And I think it's a great. It's a great episode. Um, Jamal was really generous with his time. And as you might imagine from reading him, a wonderful and thoughtful interlocutor. Yes, definitely. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think what came through is how careful a thinker Jamal is. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, housekeeping? Yeah, I don't know if we have much to report. We're really appreciative to all our Patreon subscribers. For $5 a month, you can subscribe and get access to our bonus episodes. And for $10 a month, it's still the case that you can get both those bonus episodes and a free digital subscription to Descent Magazine, which continues to sponsor the podcast. Yeah, I we are trying to do more bonus episodes. So if, if that interests you at all, we've been doing more, but I think especially over the next few months, you know, it's a season rich in to- possible topics and uh, issues for us to discuss. So I think... We'll be continuing on with the pace we've set, hopefully even doing a little more. And now that the summer's kind of over, maybe settling into a little more, slightly more frequent and regular main episodes too. Yeah. Um, So that's, if you want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash knowyourenemy. It's much appreciated. It's what makes it possible to do it. So with that said, should we get onto this interview? Um, We did want to note that we, we talked to Jamel in the middle of August sometime. So if there's anything that you think we would have talked about that happened in the past month or so that we don't, it might be because it hadn't happened yet. (laughs) Right. For instance, the Republican National Convention. Yeah. Right. Like there was a lot of fodder there that, you know, uh, if we recorded it later, we might have picked up on. But that's right. We recorded this a few weeks ago and have had it in the hopper and uh, we're excited to share it with you. Yeah. So here it is, our conversation with Jamel Bowie, a New York Times columnist. Our second New York Times columnist, Matt. I feel like we're selling out. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. But um, I suspect it will be our last. <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite possible. All right. Enjoy. Well, 
thanks so much, Jamel, for agreeing to come on the podcast. We're really excited, and I'm a fan of your column and your writing, so uh, this is a a special episode for us, I think. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm glad glad that you guys asked me to come on. Apologies that it's taken so long. Um, (laughs) I am flaky. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, so am I, but it was worth it because we're ex- very excited for this episode. To hop right in, to dive right in, Jamel, uh, you know, one reason we wanted to talk to you was just the sense that so many of the debates we're having, you know, over racial justice, policing, are in parts debate over debates over American history. Uh, we saw that with the 1619 Project, especially. I just think one of the things that distinguishes your work is the way you incorporate history into it, your reading and uh, your understanding of, of the, uh, the American past. So I wondered if you could just, for our listeners, talk about your process a little bit, uh, maybe some of even the dilemmas of that, like how do you fit complex scholarship into a eight or 900 word column? Sure. I mean, I think my, my starting sort of point as a columnist um, and my starting perspective is that despite being hired for my voice, I actually don't think I'm all that interesting and have and don't think I have too many novel things to add to the conversation. And so I, I sort of, from the jump, um, when I joined the Times, tried to ask myself, what could my possible value add be to the, to the uh, editorial page? And my answer to myself was that I uh, am a pretty voracious reader. Um, I, I read pretty widely in American history and kind of the two, you know, there's two like subject areas. It is kind of the revolutionary era and the Civil War Reconstruction era. And that what I could do as a columnist was attempt to provide some kind of historical context, historical background, mm-hmm. um, impress upon readers that many of the things um, we argue about, debate about, uh, have like clear historical antecedents, um, are parts of long-running arguments and debates within American society, and that it it's worth understanding those things. And then I have like my own you know, intellectual preoccupations, the, the big one is simply thinking of uh, American history as like a, a, a very, you know, contentious argument about who can be a member of a democratic polity. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say one thing, which is that uh, sort of unsaid, but obvious, I think, to the readers, that you hold yourself to such a higher standard for what yes. a uh, <laughs> opinion column should be. Uh, in an American newspaper than almost anybody else. I mean, I I disagree with you that you that your individual voice doesn't have a lot to add to the conversation. It's been my experience that you that you very much do. But I think that approaching the position of columnist with the humility and curiosity that you do is just genuinely rare. I read a lot of opinion columns, and most people are not in the <laughs> in the business of providing a robust historical context, which is in, co- in in communication with the criticisms of that new historiography to give people a sense of the full picture of what our politics are and how they're rooted in the past. I guess maybe this is just an elaborate compliment, but <laughs> I felt like it needed to be stated that what you're describing is, is really is such a generous undertaking for your readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you for the compliment. I mean, you know, my 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 take on it 
is very much that at the end of the day, this is like, this is, I'm trying to do journalism. I'm not just trying to like pontificate. I'm trying to actually use the tools of journalism for the sake of, uh, you know, uncovering stuff for readers. And so that's, I mean, and the other thing is just like, I don't know, I honestly can't figure out how people write twice a week or multiple times a week without doing research or reporting. It seems like you would quickly (laughs) exhaust. Yep. And they do go on whatever, <laughs> whatever takes you have. You would think. Um, so earlier, you asked, you know, sort of what might be the the perils of using history in this mm-hmm. way, and I think I think there there are two, and you see them a lot. And I think I've I you know if I look back at work past, I think I've been guilty of them, and like part of this process is me trying basically to teach myself to think like an academic historian. But the the two I would identify. Um, is the the first is reaching mm-hmm. for analogies to the past um, and letting and treating those analogies as arguments in and of, in and of themselves, mm-hmm. right? This thing is like this thing, and even if there is no therefore, the therefore is, and so the the underlying processes of this thing are the same as that thing. But that's like not really the case, right? Right? That like there are continuities and similarities and such but at the end of the day new things are in fact new and like uh events may look similar but be driven by fundamentally different processes Mm -hmm. and so it's it's really important i think in using history to use uh historical Mm -hmm. comparisons not as a way of making an argument but as a way of illuminating the argument you are making about the present yeah so that's the that's the first thing the second thing is i think and it's sort of related but I, I think that a lot of uses of history tend to take, you know, some kind of teleological view, mm-hmm. um, whether that is a, you know, Whiggish, we're all moving towards yeah. greater and more freedom, whether that's a pessimistic view, right? That sort of these something is static through time and all leading to the same place. Mm-hmm. I often think that uses of history suffer too much from not taking seriously contingency. Yeah. And the fact that and the, the thing the thing that took me kind of years to really internalize, but the fact that at in any given moment, right? If you if it's 1862 and you are, mm-hmm. you know, Lincoln, you don't really know what happens three years from now in that moment. Like for people in the moment, they don't know how it unfolds. Um, and if you if you if you if you take that seriously, that should also impose humility on you about what you can pre- predict and project. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it also leads to sort of a bit more generosity and under trying to understand and interpret figures from the past to really take seriously that. No one knows how things are going to shake out. No one knows, uh, you know, what the consequences of actions are going to be. When you're reading about those people, um, you should not, you know, you basically should not judge them for not figuring out how it's going to wrap up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw yeah. uh, Bernard Balin died just a day or two ago. Yeah. And uh, in I was struck by in the New York Times obituary for him. Um, one of the lines of his that they quoted was was this. He said, uh, quote, the fact, the inescapable fact is that we know how it all came out and they did not. (laughs) Right. And I I really do think that internalizing the implications of that is like really important to being a responsible reader of history. Mm -hmm. 
the other thing that seems to be so true of American politics, and maybe to an even more extreme degree right now than in every other moment that I've been alive, contests over the meaning of history, like an, an historiographic disagreement, seems to be so present in like our day-to-day political discourse that sort of what is the meaning of the American project is a live question in political debate. Uh, I mean, we, we know that the reaction to the 1619 project suggests that there are, for different political factions, enormous stakes to how we interpret the past. And which also sort of raises the responsibility of being a reader of history and being a kind of a person who educates your readers about history um, in this moment. So I think maybe one question to move us from the sort of more meta to the to the substance is, in your view, how are conservatives right now using history and what what's at stake in, for example, the debate over the 1619 project and whether that should be sort of a educational touchstone for American students or or even just for New York Times readers? Well, part part of, part of the difficulty is I still myself have a hard mm-hmm. time of figuring out just exactly what the conservative reaction to the 1619 project is trying to accomplish. Right. Um, I get. I, I get. The, the the you know the socialist worker party reaction the w um the world socialist website i actually yeah, we really know, we I, know exact we can figure out exactly what the trots are worried about right exactly <laughs> um that that's that's very straightforward but you know watching how that unfolded and seeing right like the wall street journal editorial page you know boost up the trots in their critique Seeing someone like Tom Cotton simultaneously decry the 1619 Project, but then forward a claim, you know, the founders thought slavery was a necessary evil, which is like way more, you know, expansive right. than whatever is in the 1619 Project, makes it difficult for me to figure out exactly what's going on. I think, I think mm-hmm. part of the reaction has to be basically just culture war politics of the crudest kind, right? That look, these people you hate are attempting to reframe, you know, God-given history. And so irrespective of the claims they're making, right, mm-hmm. here is you should you should hate them. But if I if I'm going to go beyond that and actually try to think seriously about like why conservatives find 1619 and not just, you know, Republican conservatives, but you know, your your uh, intellectual yeah. dark web dark web types, your Andrew Sullivan types, like why they find it it's not just threatening, but so existentially threatening to the American project. The answer might be if you think about what the sixteen nineteen project is asking readers to do, which is to imagine if the founding was sixteen nineteen with the arrival of African slaves and what what does that mean for your understanding or our, our understanding of American history and the American present. Um I think what it's threatening to conservatives is the way in which that does challenge the idea that the American founding itself, the revolution, mm-hmm. is this singular world historical event that lets mm-hmm. that like unleashes mm-hmm. freedom um, for all. That if you think that uh, Americans have to have kind of a singular 
mythic narrative mm-hmm. um, about the country. Uh, and if you think that that is cannot be untied from revering the founding generation and the revolutionary period, then something like 1619 ends up being does end up being an existential challenge. You know, you are trying to destroy America by asking that question and attempting to mm-hmm. center the agency of enslaved people. Because yes. I think that's part of it as well. Kind of a resistance to a resistance mm-hmm. to the idea that the actors of history aren't actually, you know, the the elites. That the actors of history, the people who are uh, pushing things forward are those without elite power, those whose words may not have been recorded, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but who were acting. Uh, mm-hmm. there, I, I wrote this Juneteenth column. We were planning to ask you about it. Go on. <laughs> um, I wrote this Juneteenth column basically kind of unspooling the idea that it's it's the agency of enslaved people and not just through rebellions, but through all, all, all sorts of actions that really drives anti-slavery politics um, to, you know, the point of abolition. And uh, there is, you know, there was this like right wing freak out about it, you know, falsifying history, et cetera, et cetera. But and the the critique at the end of the day wasn't that the history was wrong, but that the emphasis wasn't enough on white abolitionists and white elites. And I think that, too, you know, the degree to which someone like you know, Nicole Hannah Jones, who is very vocal about 1619 on social media, is actively derisive of the idea that, you know, white elites in the 18th century, 19th century deserve any more than marginal credit, any more than marginal credit about the end of slavery. I think really grinds the the gears Mm -hmm. of conservative critics. Yes. The criticism of 1619 is mostly focused on Nicole's essay. Yes. And within Nicole's essay, the, you know, right. I, I think that the standard view is that it's her claim about the relationship of slavery to the revolution that is, you know, the grounds for saying that this is false. But at mm-hmm. the time when all this exploded, that wasn't given as much attention as it was her claim that for the most part, African-Americans acted alone in realizing right. the country's democratic principles. That's the thing I think that is driving conservatives crazy. And that's the thing which has prompted the cry that this is falsifying history or distorting history or is going to undermine people's belief in America. In in light of that, what do you make of the criticisms from people like Sean Wylance, um, who you would not consider conservatives, who you know aren't right-wing figures in American politics? How do you think about their criticisms? Uh, you know, Wylance organized that kind of now famous, infamous letter to the New York Times criticizing the 1619 Project. If we've already identified some of the anxieties on the right and from, from conservatives, what's underlying the, the criticisms from people who maybe in a, in, in a general political sense are mostly on your side or would be considered liberals or progressives of some kind? So Wylance, I think his most recent book is No Property in Man, which is sort of arguing that the Constitution um, contained kind of immense anti-slavery potential because it doesn't explicitly mm-hmm. enshrine um, slavery in its text. And I think for for and, and sort of the, what that argument's doing, right, is it is making it, it is actually pushing back against recent Constitution not skepticism, but sort of 
recent um, scholarship around the Constitution and slavery, it is trying to say that, no, in fact, that the the liberal narrative of ever-expanding progress is still true. And it's true because kind of our, our central founding document um, mm-hmm. itself represents this. And that, you know, if you understand the Constitution as being anti-slavery at the, at the start, we can still revere the founders because they, mm-hmm. you know, they set the stage for um, this expanding freedom, which <laughs> isn't expanding. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of the thing. It's always the, the the implicit claim that whatever critiques you might have, sort of the American system is always moving in the direction of greater freedom. I think that narrative is still has a lot of purchase mm-hmm. on, you know, among liberals, among uh, mainstream uh, liberal politicians, voters, um, intellectuals. You know, I just a couple of weeks ago reread um, Obama's speech at Selma, the Selma anniversary in 2015. And that's basically the narrative of that speech. And it's a great speech. It's probably like one of the best pieces of recent presidential rhetoric ever. Yeah. But it does faithfully reproduce um, mm-hmm. the kind of the liberal racial narrative. And I think that's why I mean, yeah. it's precisely because 1619 stands as a challenge to that narrative, a suggestion that, in fact, you know, for as much as there has been expanding freedom, white supremacy does remain a constant that Willens finds that, you know, threatening. And, and, and he, my impression is that Willens also very much believes that progress does happen like, you know, elites are a critical part of progress happening. I don't know if you guys remember back in 2008, he was a really intense Hillary Clinton partisan and was one of the folks who was arguing that the uh, the notion that ground grassroots movements that make progress happen is wrong, that you need politicians and you need sort of traditional politicians at that to actually actualize the progress. This was, I think, apropos Clinton's um, claim that, mm-hmm. you know, civil rights happened because you had an LBJ. I think she has something to, the, to that effect. And I think Willens is sort of behind her. And so yeah. I think, I think his, mm-hmm. I, th- I think he is representative of a lot of liberals and that, and I, I think not even, li- I mean, here's the thing, not even liberals, but I think a lot of white people, liberal or conservative, you know, left or right are uncomfortable with the idea that white Americans were at best, kind of a marginal force in the fight for mm-hmm. African American civil rights, or the fight against slavery. Mm-hmm. Just mentioning the yeah. WSWS criticism of sixteen nineteen, like one of the criticisms was ex- exactly that it downplayed interracial uh, moments of resistance. And <laughs> yeah, my response to that kind of thing is always like, well, yeah, they were moments. I mean that's the, the the language the language betrays the problem with the argument. I think that's right. I mean, I often see the pattern of anger towards certain kinds of arguments, including arguments that you're often making in your columns. The pattern of conservative bile and vitriol against those arguments, it does have to do with the denial of black political agency or the political agency of non-elites in general in American politics. It's often those sorts of arguments where you say that enslaved people ended slavery, that you see the most intense anger. And I think that the, the pattern there gives away the game. I mean, one thing that this is making me think is that conservatives 
who do get very upset about 1619 Project, they have a very fragile concept of what holds the country together. It always strikes me as just so absurd, you know, on its face, the idea that something like a, you know, academically informed journalistic project, which engages in some revisionist history, or which engages, as you say, in a thought experiment about where we place the sort of real start of the American project, that the idea that something like that could like lead to the destruction of America as such, that it would all fall apart if we didn't have this shared mythic narrative, that you're poisoning the minds of the of the youth by telling them that America did bad things or that that slavery or or Jim Crow were like oppressive regimes on a regimes on a world historical scale, that somehow like it's all gonna come unraveled if if that narrative is out there. It indicates this this deep sense of fragility of what holds the country together. And I think that one kind of obvious and easy answer to why that is, is because their concept of what the country is, is one which incorporates a quite a lot of racial and class hierarchy. And so it may be the case that if people internalized these critiques, that the version of the country that they are either explicitly or implicitly attached to might come unraveled. But it, it also is just sort of striking that those of us who are believers in sort of like relentless critique of all things and of of our own history are those who actually believe in some way some of us i would include myself in a kind of more resilient america than those who are the most strident nationalists no i think that's right i mean <laughs> it's funny like i'm i i'm a I, i'm a black guy from virginia my family is from you know the south the Deep South, direct descendant of enslaved people. And if it's like, if there were anything that were going to, you know, lead people of my background <laughs> to be, yeah. uh, to not believe in America, <laughs> it's, it's already happened, right? It's already like, happened a million times over. So part part of, and let me say, before I even go, go down this road, let me say that like, I don't think 1619 is above critique or criticism. There are things I would critique or criticize about the package. Um, yeah, yeah. There are risk. There are things I think, you know, there are things I think it does that should be uh, problematized, to use an academic word. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my, I feel like my, my refrain on this on social media has been, you know, actually engage with what the thing says and not so much the, yeah. the what it is as a cultural totem. Yeah. Um, having said that, the idea that this sort of critical view of the American past is um, something that, you know, threatens the, the unity of the American nation. When you consider that for African Americans specifically, but not alone, you know, Native Americans as well, um, for uh, various groups in the country, when you consider that their own understanding of the country's history is in fact much closer to that critical view than to like the mainstream um, mm -hmm. view, even amongst those right who you know, I, I I'm from a military family, and um, it's a military family who, full of people who you uh -huh. know would say things like, yeah, slaves built the country. <laughs> um, yeah, right. And so to say that that view is somehow illegitimate is kind of basically to say that that perspective, like, you know, the 
the African-American perspective on American history, such that there is a singular one, is of, uh, you know, suspect legitimacy. It really, it really does begin to, like, rule out in the, the understanding of the country that some of its constituent groups might have. Right. Um, because it doesn't hew closely enough to, you know, founder worship or to the, you know, everything's always getting better all the time view. And that's, I mean, one of the things... I feel like I try to do as a columnist is basically just remind people that like black Americans, other, other groups aren't just palette swapped white Americans Mm -hmm. (laughs) that their experiences as like racialized subjects does do it does actually lead to different conclusions about, you know, whatever you want to insert. Therefore you can't just like generalize. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take us too far afield or, or get bogged down into this. But I also want to just touch on criticisms from the left of the 1619 Project. And I totally agree on the sort of strangeness of someone like Jim Oakes giving a, a interview with the, the World Socialist website. Um, but I, I do think, just to, to your comment about the way the 1619 Project was treated more as a cultural totem, um, like I am very interested in some of the criticisms of the, the new histories of capitalism. Right. Or say some of the about a year or so ago, I was got deep into the weeds and some of the assessments of Ed Baptist book, The Half Has Never Been Told, about, you know, some of the mistakes made in that. And but it seemed to me like, sure, you could have relatively fine grained debates about very specific aspects of the scholarship being drawn on in certain of the essays in the 1619 project. But that wasn't what happened. So uh, what do you make of the the kind of the left, not just liberals like Sean Wellens, but almost more Marxist historians who think that the some of the economics underneath the 1619 Project aren't quite right. And what would have it looked like to have a more productive debate about the 1619 Project? Because from my perspective, I uh, greeted the arrival of the 1619 Project with a lot of sympathy, and I was impressed that a organization like the New York Times put so much, re- so many resources into it. And I was just thrilled that this kind of high-level journalism that incorporates sophisticated historical scholarship was being put out into the world. And that was the fundamental thing for me. Some of the debates on the margins you can have were interesting uh, to me as someone who you know, had had read through some of those debates, but it didn't seem like that was the way the public conversation played out, even even uh, when it came to those criticisms from the left, that some of which I find interesting. Uh, so what did you make of, of those kinds of attacks on the project? The historian interviews that I think got sort of the, the, the widest uh, attention were super interesting. It, it's interesting to read those without the controversy being live, because if you if you read them that way it's clear that in some of them like the oaks one yeah it is sort of measured criti- it's a measured criticism and discussion it's not an attempted debunking and and the, the interviews are, are sold as debunkings but they're not really i mean the closest mm-hmm. thing to that is gordon woods but his his critique seems to be as much about no one talked to gordon woods in the making of this yeah as it is about any historiography um, which is fair, you know. I mean, if I were Gordon Woods, I might be miffed about that as well. But so those those interviews, Victoria Barnum's Bar- Barnum Barnum's uh, Barnum's interview critiqued, you know, the idea in Nicole's essay that Black Americans were largely alone on this thing. 
the Oaks essay critiques some of the the causality mm-hmm. with regards to slavery and the revolution. There was the political magazine ran a critique by a historian who's a fact checker who echoed that. Um, and all of those are, I think people should read them. And I think if you could isolate those interviews and those discussions away from kind of all the, the all the tempests, mm-hmm. I think those are really important to put in dialogue with the 1619 project um, uh, to begin to get us to, to get a sense of what it does well, where it needs more work, where it fails, etc. So there's that. But then there's the tempest on the left, mm-hmm. I think, involves kind of the perennial mm-hmm. argument about what exactly is the place that race plays in like the world system. <laughs> that to me is what you know, if you what the non-interview um WSWF stuff yes. was getting at, right? That sort of this, you know, the sixteen nineteen project and its attempt to displace class as the central contradiction and to replace it with race, which is, you know, obvi- is obviously a biological fiction and ends right. up, uh, you know, contributing to the division of workers along racial lines. I think that's sort of like, I think that's silly, personally. I, I think the thing that divides uh, uh, the working class is the fact that, like, racial segmentation is like a real lived thing. Yeah. Not- oh, I didn't notice that there was a... Uh- any uh, racial segregation in the working class until I read about it in the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Jamel, I, I think you're right that, it, you know, at one level you can read, say, James Oak's interview and, you know, read it narrowly as a dispute about the accounting practices of uh, Southern slaveholders and plantation owners. Or I think you're right that the it seemed like some of the deeper implications of some of those interviews were really a way of rehashing the tired race class debates that, that emerged with great force kind of during Trump's initial rise and, and then after his win. And that that was just my sense that, that I couldn't shake it that this was really a way of circling back to the race and class debates. No, that's my sense, too. I, I think I think it's precisely because The New York Times is identified with conventional liberalism and i think i I don't know i can't remember everyone who wrote in the uh project but i'm sure some of the writers Mm -hmm. are identified with conventional liberalism i probably am identified with conventional liberalism it is what it is Mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's precisely because that's what the source is that that's sort of where the debate immediately went it was read as sort of an entry in that debate when i'm not sure that that's really the right the right tenor and i you know I wrote. I feel like I wrote uh, something about obliquely about the race class thing, which sort of was uh, me throwing up my hands and <laughs> saying it's both. Yeah, we're all veterans of the old race class <laughs> argument on as it plays out on Twitter. But you know, I think that one thing to bring us uh, closer to the present, and um, which gets at that too, is. The same kind of stuff is happening at the margins of the discourse about the protests that are happening in the streets right now, but also about the effect of kind of the society-wide, uh, liberal society-wide sort of re-examination of, of racism right now, again, because, you know, you have, you wrote a column that was called, it was called like Beyond White Fragility or something like that that yeah something like that yeah and um i do think that there's an argument to be made that in its manifestation as like a a book like that written by robin d'angelo at 
as a person who, you know, goes and does a bunch of like sort of corporate bias trainings, that that sort of phenomenon might represent the impulse to try to deal with America's race problem exclusively in its, in its effects, you know, without deconstructing any of the power structures that enable it. And so from the left's perspective, that is the sort of worst kind of uh, pseudo liberal anti-racism, which uh, can only kind of result in, you know, better mannered white people, but not like a restructuring of society on the scale that would be necessary to actually deal with the effects of, of racism, of segregation, of white supremacy in America. And, and your column, you were really, as one has to do kind of all the time, apparently, reminding people that that the American race question is also a question of, of economic egalitarianism and economic power and the ne necessity for economic justice. And in every sort of manifestation of black protest, it has also been, that discourse has also been present. I mean, even and especially with civil rights leaders like <laughs> Martin Luther King. I, I mean, I'd be interested in, in, to hear from you what the sort of impetus for that column was. Sure. I mean, and I'm sure y'all have had these conversations on social media as well. Cause it's like you, there are like two things happening simultaneously, or were, or I guess they are so ongoing. But the first is these on the ground mass protests involving, I think the estimate is something like up to 15 million people nationwide protesting police brutality, calling for pretty fundamental changes to how policing is done in this country. Um, these protests are largely, you know, led by, driven by young, Black people, many of whom um, are, you know, working class black people, um, uh, or just, you know, some of them who don't have jobs, right? Sort of representing the the lower end of the class spectrum among African Americans. And then you also have the thing represented by white fragility um, and all the books like that, sort of highly moralistic and therapeutic kind of anti-racism that is about right being a right thinking person. I guess this is what people refer to when they say woke. Um, disparagingly, yeah, yeah, disparagingly. And I, I, I thought what was happening, and what I think is still happening, is rather than recognize that these two things, while not separate from each other, are running along somewhat different lines and will interact with each other in um, ways you can't necessarily predict. There was this claim that, well, because, you know, Nike can issue a BLM message and corporate uh, HR departments want to hire Robin DiAngelo, therefore, this, these, this, uh, these protests, these uprising are really just a product of white liberal guilt and, you know, an attempt to you know, replace traditional liberalism with some sort of new ideology that, you know, it's called anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just wrong. I think, I mean, this gets back to this whole, like, black people have agency in history thing. I, I think with that column and just what I what I generally actually think now is that the stuff happening on the ground is has a life of its own and is going to, I think, result in, in changes and developments that may end up really reverberating in a big way. Um, years down the line. And the same with the original Black Lives Matter protests in retrospect are very significant in terms of how they shaped American politics. I think, I think yeah. these are going to be the same. Um, 
the white fragility stuff is uh, annoying and um, often bad, but given how for most of the country's history, most yeah. white people were either like enthusiastic backers of race hierarchy or indifferent to racism, I don't actually think it's a non-trivial or insignificant thing that at least on paper – there is a growing number of white people who are like racism is bad and are looking for ways to sort of understand the implications of that. I think that is an opportunity. And I think that the way to use that opportunity is to use that as a starting ground to connect for those people yeah. the the rate the the prejudice question to the mm -hmm. to the class question and to connect for those people how you know, if you if you don't like police brutality, which I think is a sincere thing that these people don't like, if you if you don't like the idea of racial uh, prejudice and inequality, then uh, here's how these things actually manifest and reproduce themselves. And it's tied to, you know, it's tied to housing, it's tied to education, it's tied to all these things. Yeah, I think that's an opportunity, especially since, you know, all of this is happening in the context of a president who these people hate, right? And so you have this emotional response on part of white liberals that mm -hmm. I, I kind of think opens the door to... to Deepening their understanding of what racism is, deepening their understanding of class, and um, and and using that as a way forward. And so I, I mean, I'm gonna call myself an optimistic person, but it's 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 precisely because the extent of you know, on paper anti-racism among white people is at a historic high that I can't bring myself to see the Robin D'Angelo stuff as being, you know, just a bad sign, right? Because the alternative usually isn't a white public that embraces, you know, a more material understanding of things. It's a white public that just doesn't give a shit. Right. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and Jamal, how how would you, given this newfound interest and given your interest in history, I mean, I suppose, you know, in some ways your columns are a, a, a working out of what I'm about to ask, but there really are some people who in a good faith way, are newly aware of certain problems. Or, it, as you say, on paper, there's this is a kind of high watermark for anti-racism from, from white liberals or some progressives. I, I think one question that follows from that is, like, well, where did these problems come from, right? And how would you want to explain that to people? I don't mean in all the particular details, but in this moment, what's the, the most effective way to talk about that to these people who are newly interested in that question? Yeah, that's a that's that's a good question. Um, I mean, the thing I wouldn't want to say right is that it comes from you know simple prejudice because it just it just doesn't explain enough. It suggests that a the problem is just sort of right thinking, and it suggests that you know white mm -hmm. racism is this historic constant when it isn't. Um, it looks different ways at different times. It's more salient at some points than at others. It's weaker at some points than at, than at others. And it's it's kind of, as a general thing, I think, wrong to mm -hmm. treat white racism, even white supremacy, as this like permanent trans-historical thing rather than something that has itself has a history mm -hmm. and itself is sort of recapitulated um, at points uh, when it didn't have to necessarily be. Mm -hmm. So... I, I would probably spend a lot of time trying to get people to understand that. <laughs> but after that, I, I think I would I think I would try to move people in the direction of seeing something like police brutality as 
having to do with with the the management of uh, populations that are sort of deem, deemed unnecessary, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And that all of this is tied up in. Uh, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to break myself as of the writer for the public habit of trying to find like I, I know I can just sort of like speak without finding lay language for everything, but that's a hard habit to break myself of. Uh, but no, trying to convince people that this this is a question of capitalism and like question of the relations of capitalism depending on uh segmenta- segmentation and exclusion yeah for for the reproduction of capital yeah is your sense that there might be a kind of new opportunity to make those kind of arguments because the welfare state that was developed you know the new deal and, and after that was oriented toward white people that itself is now you know, through four decades of neoliberalism, you know, being shredded. And do you think there are there are white people who feel maybe newly vulnerable economically that might make them more aware of some of these issues you're getting at? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think this is all happening. There seems to be everything kind of playing off off of themselves, but I don't think you can disentangle the broad-based nature of the Black Lives Matters protests from even the pandemic, right? From even the fact that the pandemic has basically not not revealed, but made brutally clear that large numbers of people who thought that their middle class status or professional status or what have them what have you would buy it would would, would provide protection against uh, economic desperation. That just isn't the case. For sure. The the decline of collapse of the American welfare state or the New Deal welfare state I think is produce is is producing a politics in which you have one set of white Americans who, um, and and also as a result of kind of the civil rights, so you have the civil rights movement as well, who have more tolerant racial views, um, and also an acute awareness of their economic vulnerability, and are beginning to see themselves as being sort of in coalition with. Racial others. They're beginning to see those things as connected to each other, and then you have another, and then <laughs> you have another group of white people who also see these things as connected to each other, but see the nominal sort of equality um, of black people of, of immigrants and such as being the reason for the decline. And that's sort of those are roughly speaking your two sides. But I think you're right, Matt. Shifting material ground is sort of the thing that's driving all of this. I, I don't think that if we were looking at a 1950s economy for white people, that we'd be, you'd have the same kind of ferment. One thing that I think separates my thinking about policing and police brutality from some of the kind of straightforward Marxist accounts that we're alluding to, and that I think actually is most powerfully articulated by people who would be described as like black pessimist scholars, which has also sort of been the white left is sort of treated as responsible for some of more of the damaging kind of accounts of anti-racism in, in the present. But that I think that is that that is missed if you only focus on race as a sort of like segmenting of the working class, which prevents proletarian revolution, is that the policing of black people in America, in particular by only contingently white immigrants in the in the period 
you know, leading up to the 1960s and then past then too, that the, bruta- that the brutality actually pl- has a, a specific kind of spectacular function. Like that doing the amount of violence upon black people that white police officers did in a way that does have resonances with, you know, slave patrols and the, the origin of policing in the South, that it also serves a function to distinguish, to sort of like, for, for one thing, for those people, the people doing that violence, it is a part of how they earn their whiteness but also for the functions of the of the maintenance of the racial order that we're that we're talking about more broadly to impose very clearly the distinction the proletarianization and the otherness of black people that's not actually like not something that can be uh helpfully incorporated into the account that that we're developing it can be but it's also this this quality of the excess of violence it goes beyond me- mere kind of population control to the spectacle of violence being somehow necessary and i think that that's also a place where i see that as an important factor and for those who are uncomfortable with talking about whiteness as a important category of analysis would be resistant to. I think part of what's difficult is just that no one wants to, no one wants to reify race as like a real thing, but it's also, yeah, it's also clear just from. Well, history has reified it. Right. Exactly. They're both, they're both as no such thing as white people, but it's also true that when you look at something like police violence, when you look at something like lynching, that you are sort of seeing like a white America constituate itself by the the application of this kind of violence, exactly. Like kind of gain understanding of what it what it is, yeah. By doing these things, yes, exactly. I feel like one of my conclusions from like the last four years of thinking more about you know the relationship of race and racism and class and all these things is that like there maybe isn't there maybe is no way to have a single framework here mm-hmm. yeah. um, that Marxists are right that it, it is tied to class and class formation. Afro-pessimists are right that it's tied to sort of psychological formation and the libidinal economy. Um, yeah. Various theorists here are right about aspects of this. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure one can like synthesize them all into a single, Yeah. you know, analysis you can put them in communication with each other productively which sometimes people don't do right people are capturing things that are like the it's hard to watch the george floyd video and not think that the officer was deriving pleasure from what he was doing right it's hard and it's hard like when you see when you see that and when you see that again and again it makes sense to begin to sort of like theorize about the role of pleasure here yeah and maybe it doesn't maybe maybe if you only take that perspective it can obscure important aspects of what racism is yes yeah but it's on the, on the other side as you suggested sam thinking of it solely in terms of class and labor and segmentation also misses something right there's um it's a paraphrase it's a paraphrase um, that Charles Mills uses in an essay in um, the book from class to race. Mm-hmm. And he, I forget who he's paraphrasing, but he's, he says, um, 
and this is my paraphrase of his paraphrase, <laughs> that the working class in America formed itself and formed itself as a white working class. And part of what Mills, I think, is, is trying to do in that essay is get across this idea that whiteness and racism are these things that have this real psychological component to them. Um, right. Yeah. Du Bois, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. that's sort of the, the construction of the psychological wages of whiteness. Um, I don't, du Bois I, would be the first to say that this is a labor question. Right. But also that psychological aspect, that identity formation aspect right. is incredibly powerful. Yes. Um, and I think, I mean, I think if there's reason to kind of bring it back to an earlier part of the conversation, I think part of if there's any reason to be optimistic in the present, it is it's precisely because the identity identity formation part of it has weakened. Uh-huh. There are fewer white people who have explicitly considered themselves like as white in a way that demands protection and um and security. Right. Yes. Well, the irony of our of our of some critics of what anti-racism discourse is that what they would what they think is that the preoccupation with racial categories ignites a backlash which inspires white identitarianism. I think in an essay I wrote for Matt, actually, on Jonah Goldberg, I sort of described this as like the Beetlejuice theory of, of racism, which is if you say racism enough times, then racism emerges. Like if you call people racist, they become racist. If you talk about whiteness, then whiteness becomes more deeply entrenched. Like this is a this is taken as gospel by a lot of people on the right, or or even sort of center, who think that the path has to be through de-emphasizing uh, racial categories, right. and that you run the risk of exacerbating the anger that sort of a Trumpy white base experiences by bringing up racism all the time. Right, which is funny because the it's the reverse, right? That it's it's the declining salience of of or significance of race, of 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 whiteness in particular, yeah. that's responsible for sort of a Trumpy development. You know, no no one you don't need a Trump when everyone when everyone feels secure about these things. Yeah, well, when whiteness is hegemonic, you don't need a Trump. Or what? Right, it's only when whiteness is less hegemonic. I'm obviously not he just less he hegemonic, yeah, yeah. which involves people thinking about it as its own category rather than something that just exists in the ether that doesn't really need a name. Right, that you get the reaction. Yeah, yeah. That seems that seems completely backwards to me. Like naming it isn't the thing that's <laughs> yeah. driving yeah. it. No, I, I would ag <laughs> I would agree. Maybe to kind of close out, one of the things we've talked about the you know, the conservative reaction to the 1619 Project and kind of the, the racial anxieties of the right more broadly when, when we have these debates and arguments. But one of the things that interested me about Hannah Nicole Jones's introductory essay to the 1619 Project was the kind of undercurrent, uh, maybe it was even more than that, uh, of the fact that it was African Americans who have striven most steadily and forcefully to achieve the supposed promises of our founding. And that's almost a form of, of patriotism in a way, or at least a, a real effort to call us to, to the ideals we supposedly hold. And one of the things we've talked about on the show a lot is how those of us who want to counter the right, those of us on the broad liberal left, you know, how we 
talk about American history and the importance of not seeding some of these incredibly powerful symbols that our, our history constitutes. And so how do you approach those kinds of questions? What, what's a left American patriotism look like? And I want to be clear that that is truthful about our past, but also speaks about it in a way that can be generative, too. You know, I, I get the sense in your work that this is a really honest grappling with our history, and it informs the debates and arguments we're having now. And that strikes me as as being an example of the kind of constructive uses of our history that, again, don't downplay its sins and crimes, that doesn't shy away from the uglier parts of it, but that uses it in a way that can lead forward somehow. So I, I, I agree with you about the reading of Nicole's essay. I think it is an intensely patriotic essay. Mm. Um, it, it, it is sort of, it's very much about the importance of those values. And I suppose that if you were going to try to, to craft a patriotic history for the left, this isn't an original observation. It would probably be one that did de-emphasize you know, singular individuals, de-emphasize the founders in favor of um, collective mm-hmm. action, in favor of those individuals that best represent that collective act. Um, because, but, but even, so the thing about this, right, is that like, this is a construction, right? This, this itself misses important mm-hmm. things. This yeah. itself isn't necessarily like the most accurate rendering of our history. If anything, it's sort of a, it's, it's shifting um, emphasis in a different direction. Because I think, I'm not sure, I think the project of trying to develop a historically grounded patriotism and the project of trying to understand what actually happened are just two things that aren't ever really going to intersect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, thinking about something like the Constitution, at a certain point, you know, for as much as I, I, I think, you know, the people involved in its creation um, did believe things about liberty or freedom or whatever, at a certain point, it is kind of just a story of different groups of people, different interests. Not a high-minded experiment in yep. democracy, <laughs> but uh-huh. a bunch of political elites who wanted different things out of the government and figured out a compromise to make them happen and yeah. weren't actually all that invested in making sure that, you know, we met some ideal of freedom of liberty. Yes, um, yeah. You know, the, the <laughs> that's not really something conducive to a narrative about anything. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I sort of, I, I've, I, I've gradually have come to this kind of view of not, I wouldn't say like not caring about, you know, say read the 1619 project caring about what was what was america really founded on Mm -hmm. i guess i mean i guess i don't care i I care about like what were the discrete decisions made i care about sort of what were the interests at stake i care about all that stuff but like i don't know if i care so much anymore um about coming to some final answer about about anything i'm not sure that there are final answers and so i would say that to loop back to where I started, that it's sort of like pursuing the pursuing the history is I, th- I think may end up y- you will diverge eventually from trying to construct a patriotism because that is just going to involve you know right yeah. I mean this is why this is why mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if you guys saw when I was like watching Hamilton and tweeting about it but this is why I both like do not like Hamilton but also have no problem with it. <laughs> 
I simultaneously see <laughs> Hamilton and I'm like, this, you know, I don't understand how you turn a uh, inveterate elitist like Alexander Hamilton, who like did not like democracy. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you turn that guy into the hero of a quasi 21st century liberal, uh-huh. basically. Um, on the other hand, I don't precisely because I think Americans are just going to want to construct myths about their past and construct ways of being patriotic. I kind of don't have any particular problem with if 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 the choice is between you know a bunch of Americans looking at something like Hamilton and being like that is you know that those are the American ideals I want to live up to, and looking at something like I don't know like Rich Lowry's book about nationalism as something <laughs> they want to aspire to, uh-huh. like. Give me Hamilton every day. Give me Hamilton every day of the week. Like that's exactly. obviously the yeah. better answer there. Well, it's also it's such a good point because like ultimately we are, we do not have we do not have unmediated access to the past and to the things that the people who shaped our historical outcomes believed, thought, felt, you know, what was in their hearts. History is always, I mean, fundamentally being constructed in the moment of its creation and and its purpose is always to shore up certain political regimes power structures or to undermine them like in the sense that like if you know that like that power enters into the question of historical narrative creation at every moment right like michelle rolf trio's book silencing the past like sort of explains that like history is always a ideological construct of those who need to use it for some particular purpose, then you do have to kind of face the fact that like, we're always going to that history and its memory is always going to be some combination of an empirical enterprise and an enterprise of like deciding how to think about the past in a way that helps us achieve our political ends in the present. <laughs> I don't know if I'm being now too cynical. But if you at least incorporate the pos- that possibility into your thinking, then yeah, then then the choice sometimes is between Hamilton, the musical, and some rendering of the past which shores up existing hierarchies instead of posing them as a as a as a problem. Yeah, I think I think that makes total sense. Listening to it it sounds more coherent than what I said. So for people who listen to this podcast, just assume that I agree with Sam here. It did not feel coherent coming out of my mouth at all. So I hope I hope that you're right. And I should say I agree too, despite the way I uh, formulated the initial question. But it's it's something we've just talked about, and I think it's uh it's something that we all think about in certain ways too. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the task that Jamel has set himself to understand the past and communicate it to his readership, this sort of you know very generous and humble undertaking. The, the project is not the is not the same thing as like how do we come up with a usable progressive past, but coming up with a usable progressive past is still a necessary project for, on political grounds. I mean, I think. No, I, I think so. I, mean, I, th- I think so too. Um, yeah. and, and I just want to say, I mean, the right is so good at constructing those usable pasts. I mean, they've, they constructed about their own movement, the conservative movement, right? And there's a, a real way in which, you, you know, I think this is starting to change, but there really was, I think, a period of time, even among academic historians, say, uh, circa the, the Bush years even, where people who studied the right were like, you know, are we missing something? They keep beating us. Uh, is, is there something about the conservative movement that we haven't understood that would explain its appeal? And they, they've done the same with 
you know, there's a cottage industry on the right of, you know, people like Rick Brookheiser at National Review writing, so, you know, sort of potted biographies of people like Alexander Hamilton. And, and so it, it feels in some ways like because we're willing to, to kind of look at the ugliness of American history, it puts us it, with clear eyes. It can put us at a political disadvantage in the present because of the power of of the myths that the right has constructed and not just the right, of course, you know, uh, I mean, we talked about the, the liberal historians who sh- uh, maybe don't share all the criticisms of the right of the 1619 project, but nevertheless, it just seems like I, I feel like it, uh, it rhetorically the left is always at a disadvantage. Did you see, is, hasn't Christian Parenti just written a book sort of reclaiming the radical left Hamilton? Yeah, no, there's a, I read, I read the, um, I read an article, I think in Jacobin that attempts to, that kind of offers the argument in condensed form. Um, Hamilton as sort of pro-government statist. See, I'll just say I'm a Hamilton skeptic. Not that, I mean, not the, the musical, but the man, Alexander Hamilton. I am, um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not so sure we should want to try to recover, uh, or construct a, a left narrative about a, you know, a financier. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jamal. It's I found this incredibly interesting, and uh, again, I I'm a real admirer of your work. And you know, there's a lot of reasons not to be hopeful these days, but to me, uh, your work is a, a a bright spot in well, a lot of darkness around us. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, hopefully, nothing I've said on this podcast will get me canceled. I think everything you said was unimpeachable. God, we should have just done this whole episode about Hamilton. I just watched it for the first time. Well, should we wrap it up? This has been so great. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, real pleasure. Um, I know we've met before, Sam. I don't think we've met before, Matt. No, but uh, I will say if I ever get down to Charlottesville again, I'll, I'll buy you a drink at the CNO. Thank you. <laughs> and whenever I'm in New York again, wh- whoever knows when that'll be, um, I'll be sure to drop you guys a line. Yeah, sounds great. Well, thank you so much. It's really been wonderful. Thanks. Thank you.